Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I concluded last week that John Calvin, by tying the place of the dead, or Hades, to eternal punishment, Gehenna, and then he links that with the punishment inflicted on the cross, uh, on Christ, and that achieves forgiveness. He invents a new doctrine that we call penal substitution. And this is the doctrine that I think is most definitive of evangelical Christianity. And what I would say, and what I'm going to say today, is this shift changes the meaning of Christianity. Now the question is, and I'm not going to completely answer this question, does it in fact give us a different religion? By changing the meaning of the death of Christ, making punishment of an innocent man the payment for the guilty, and then calling this justice, he ties this to future eternal suffering or eternal death, and then he says this is a legal requirement of God, and then he equates this with God's mercy, with God's salvation, with forgiveness, there's almost nothing left of New Testament Christianity. The biblical focus is on a practical deliverance from a real world problem. And there is an ordinary understanding of justice, punishment, forgiveness, and the understanding of Christ and God as united, loving, and good. I think these things are obscured by John Calvin, by penal substitution. But maybe most troubling is the depiction of God as delighting in suffering, and who by, I'm afraid, any other standard would be judged positively evil. Where this God is called good and the methods he deploys is considered merciful, I think we've stood all standards of meaning and value on their head. And so what we find in the New Testament, first of all, has nothing to do with future punishment. It has nothing to do with the theoretical righteousness, but it has to do with a real world problem and a real world solution. And so as an example, let's take Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's the problem. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Paul's saying this included all of us, including me, including all you Ephesians, including the Jews. It included everybody. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath. Here's the wrath. But we're going to talk about the wrath. Even as the rest, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's the problem? People's dead. They're oriented to death. They're living in trespasses and sins. He says you were the living dead. It's not a Stephen King novel. It's Paul. The solution. Being made alive. So that tells us what the problem is. It tells us what the solution is. There is the problem. He talks about the wrath of God. But it's not simply that God is angry with us. This verse tells us that his wrath or anger is no obstacle to his life-giving love. And indeed, it seems to be subservient to his love. The children of wrath in this passage are those who are saved. The children who are loved are also the children of wrath. Wherein Calvin Wrath describes the prime destiny. That is, people are just destined for eternal wrath. For Paul, wrath is not describing a destiny. It's not describing an end point. Paul does not mean that people were destined for wrath. Since he's talking about himself. And he's talking about the Jewish Christians at Ephesus. He means that they were acting in a fallen way, like those who deserve God's wrath. And in fact, in this passage, wrath is part of the solution. You know, what is the opposite of love? Is it anger? No, it's apathy. We all get angry with those who we love, but if we don't love them, we don't care about them. The phrase, children of wrath or sons of death, it's a Hebrew expression. You'll see it, children of stripes. There's many different versions of this. And it occurs in many places in the Old Testament. In Psalms 102, these children seemingly consigned to death are the very ones who are set free so as to constitute, quote, the kingdoms to serve the Lord and to tell the name of the Lord in Zion. Ephesians, I think, is echoing these verses. This tradition of building a kingdom by citizens who are purified by passing through the love, wrath, in other words, I think we can put those two words together, of God. The sons of wrath are those very ones who will be shown mercy and who are being built together in the dwelling place of God, in the Spirit, verse 22. And the way to enter this dwelling is not as in penal substitution, 
through bypassing or foregoing the divine wrath, you know, that it's directed somewhere else, punishment, I think, in John Calvin, and because of John Calvin, in maybe just evangelical Christianity, gets a bum rap. Punishment's a good thing, right? And let's look at the word in the Bible. Discipline is equated with God's love. God disciplines those whom he loved. But in Calvin, it's equated with eternal suffering. And this doesn't restore anybody. It doesn't rectify. It doesn't reform. But in the Bible, it says in Proverbs and Hebrews, God disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, 6-7. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? This is the point of punishment that comes with sin. The presumed split between mercy and wrath is a necessity that's brought on by Calvin's, I think, insistent misreading of the Bible. He eternalizes God's wrath and he makes it of no earthly good. God's care, God's concern, God's discipline is connected to God's love. And the question is not simply how could God be just and not punish sin, but we could say how could God be loving? How could God be merciful? How could God be restorative? How could God be kind without punishing sin? His is a cleansing, purifying punishment, which is synonymous with his mercy and love. And so God is not split between anger and love. His anger flows from his love. We all were, Paul says, by nature children of wrath. But this does not stand opposed to the love of God, but it explains the next section, his being rich in mercy. It extends the love of God so as to solve the real problem. What's the real problem? Is it the wrath of God? That's not the problem. Being dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world's prince, being disobedient sons, following the lusts of the flesh, there's the problem. Being children of wrath is a consequence of the problem. God doesn't deal in the consequences in Christ. The wrath is not the problem, but sin is the problem, and as God is concerned with the problem, God does not hate us in his wrath, but like much-loved children that he's describing. The Father, in his wrath, that's a part of the element of his love. The very ones, the children of wrath, are the children of mercy. And so Calvin absolutizes wrath. He splits God the Father and the Son between wrath and love. Oh, the Father, he's the angry one. The Son, he's the loving one. Let's run to the Son to be protected from the Father. But the passage from wrath to love is not a change in God. It's not from wrath to love, but it's a passage through a purifying love. 
God is one. God is unchanging. God is love. That's the only definition we have of God, by the way, in the Bible. 1 John, God is love. He is not sometimes a God of wrath and other times a God of love. As George MacDonald puts it, for love loves unto purity and is oft experienced as wrath, as the consuming fire that will not be content until our nature, our sinful nature, everything that separates us from God is burned away. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says our God is a consuming fire. But he's describing the idea that we're redeemed through the purifying love of God. And so where Calvin absolutizes wrath, he splits the love of God, the Bible depicts a unified understanding. The other thing is that suffering does not right a wrong. For John Calvin, the standard, the line that he moves, and which even people who count themselves non-Calvinists have acceded to, is his notion that punishment as suffering is justice. And that's what it means when we say, you know, the word penalty and the word substitution, those are perfectly good words. But that's not what it means when we say penal substitution. The two terms, punishment and justice, abstracted from their biblical context and tied together in the depiction of pure suffering. You know, that's the depiction last week in 1 Peter that John Calvin has Peter talking about Jesus suffering in hell. It's not there. And he completely misses the biblical depiction of justice, of righteousness. It's not simply a legal description in the Bible, but it's a description of God making things right. It's a description of the personhood of God. The righteousness revealed from heaven is that a legal code? Is that a legal system? No, that's Jesus Christ. There's the righteousness of God. Righteousness is a person. It's the person of God. And God then through Christ is bringing us righteousness. He's making things right. This is the theme of the key theological book in the Bible. Paul says in Romans 1, 16 to 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. There is the theme of the Bible, I think the righteousness of God. It's certainly the theme of Romans. And Paul pronounces this theme, this righteousness of God, he's actually echoing several passages from the Old Testament. And he also mentions, he says, not ashamed, I'm no longer ashamed. You know, what's the human predicament? What's the human problem? Shame and death. And this is where the biblical picture, righteousness in the biblical context it's not the Greek idea, it's not the Roman idea of a standard against which the individual is measured. You know, like, oh, righteousness is right here, 
And I'm sorry, buddy, but you fall right here. To hell you go. That's not the Bible. That's Roman law. That's Greek law. But that's not the biblical picture. In the Bible, righteousness has to do with a relationship, a relational context, as in the family, as in a covenant relationship. And making the relationship right between God and us, between one another, with other people, with the world, that's righteousness. And so Paul's words, not ashamed, the universal reign of death. You know, what happens with Adam and Eve? Well, we see the introduction of shame. And shame is connected to death in the biblical Psalms and the Proverbs, that shame and death. You know, what's the end result of shame? Or what does it feel like to die? It's a kind of shame. It's a living shame. And so this is replaced with the reign of life by faith in the gospel's power to make things right. He said, I'm not ashamed. And the themes of shame and righteousness are paired in the Old Testament passages. That, you know, the language of shame, it'll appear in the lament psalms and it appears with the uh, picture of righteousness. What's the problem? You're ashamed. You, you experience shame. And the specific problem of shame and death is addressed in God giving us his righteousness. He clothes us, is the picture, so we're no longer ashamed. He clothes us in his righteousness. That's not theoretical. That's not imputed. He really does it. He makes things right with us. And so prior to the entry of sin and death, the picture you know, of Adam and Eve, it says they were naked but not ashamed. I've got a grandson who is continually naked and not ashamed. He just loves, you know, he's in Hawaii. So we can all see that. And we're returned to this state of being unashamed. Paul is not ashamed in the face of sin and death due to God's righteousness, God's faithfulness to his covenant promise. All things are made right. And this is upheld in Christ who is accomplishing what the old covenant promised. And that's why Paul says at the beginning of Romans, it's the righteousness of God is revealed now in Christ Jesus. Here's what we've been looking for. This is what the prophets longed for. Calvin completely misses this in his depiction of righteousness, in his depiction of punishment, he misses the idea of punishment as a loving correction geared toward achieving rectitude or being made right. You know, both terms, punishment and righteousness, they're obscured then because he ties them to suffering. As if suffering is equal to punishment enacted and justice achieved. You want to get some justice in a Calvin system? Or just torture, you know, make them, make them suffer. And by the way, this isn't theoretical. John Calvin has some 70 people burned at the stake. His key opponent was actually his very good friend, Michael Servetus. Calvin asked him to edit one of his manuscripts. And he does, and Calvin got mad at him because he edited too much. He burned him at the stake. 
So we're not talking theoretical here. These are equated, I think, suffering and justice. This is equated in pagan religion. It's equated in Roman law. Retribution. Unfortunately, I think it's gotten mixed into our own legal system. We're not sure, you know, is it rehabilitation? Is it revenge? Is it deterrence? And Calvin's fusion of the suffering of the cross with the suffering of Gehenna, I think it paganizes biblical justice. The suffering of a thief or a murderer, or let's say, you know, let's take the worst we can, Adolf Hitler. Let's make him suffer forever and ever. Does that in any way restore what has been lost? I use the example of my phone. You know, if my phone is stolen and I have the thief imprisoned, it doesn't make anything right as far as I'm concerned. Maybe it helps the guy, I don't know. But maybe not. No matter what suffering the thief may be put through, I'm still out of phone and the act has still been committed. Maybe, you know, I can kind of like John Calvin. And he depicts, by the way, this is, this is not John Calvin, this, uh, just John Calvin. We'll see this several times. Thomas Aquinas will talk about people delighting in seeing their loved ones suffering in hell forever and ever. Really? How can that be? And I think that it's just a perverse picture of the idea, well, sometimes we like to see people suffer. Yeah, because we're evil. That's not good. Those who have wronged us in the biblical picture, the idea is we're to forgive them. And God is pictured as forgiving people. And we are to be like our Father in heaven. Our sadistic sense of seeing our enemies suffer. You know, David prays, God, I pray you would break the teeth of my enemies. But this isn't justice. This is a completely, I think, removed from the concept of restoration. That's the biblical picture. Restoration of relationship, restoration of the kingdom of God, the city of God, restoration of human fullness. And the way this restorative justice necessarily involves the one, both the one who has done the wrong and the one who has been wrong, both parties. It involves not only the reform of the one, but the setting right of all that they have made wrong. God does not impute honesty. Do you know the word impute? This is Luther's term, but Calvin picks it up. It just means theoretically. Oh, he imputes righteousness. You're still not righteous, but he pretends like you're righteous. No, that's not. That's, the picture is that he really makes us honest. He does not presume the possibility of a theoretical or a legal reform. The slaves, you know, are not theoretically set free. The healing of Jesus is not theoretical. It's not future. It's not legalistic. It's not a reordering of the books. He really brings healing. And so we're in Calvin, punishment and suffering. They accomplish atonement. And the word then gets shifted. And this is a non sequitur. It does not follow that the punishment of the wrongdoer makes atonement for the wrong done. Somebody steals my phone. It doesn't help the situation. 
if we in some way punish or cause that person to suffer. Maybe he should be punished or maybe he should be jailed. But this has nothing to do with atonement. The word means at one being brought back into relationship. It does not help the situation that the man suffers. or You know, maybe even he volunteers. You remember Luther, he, he whips himself to make atonement to God, to induce suffering. He thought that would help him be a better person. And then he discovers, oh, that's not it. Suffering per se does not address the problem. You know, maybe the guy that stole my phone, maybe his brother comes along and says, uh, you know what, I'll serve time in prison for my brother. Or if it was a real expensive phone, I'll suffer the lash. And maybe I'll say, oh yes, that would be very satisfying to me. Well, you would question what sort of character I am that I would enjoy that. Does it help the situation if it is God that finds satisfaction in suffering? The eternal suffering of a completely innocent man? Calvin says, he himself says, this doesn't make sense. He argues from incomprehension, from the mystery of things, but he shifts this sort of behavior onto God because, oh, well, it has to do with eternity and we can't understand it. Oh, I understand it. It's evil. We can understand that. That's not right. Calvin pictures forgiveness as enabled by Christ bearing the equivalent of suffering in hell on the cross. The demand of the law, according to Calvin, is that the offense against an infinite God receive the due payment of an infinite penalty. Only when the penalty is paid can the offense be forgiven. You hearing what I'm saying? Only when God's wrath is completely satiated, and of course for Calvin that's really never, because God is just angry forever and ever. Only then can God find it in himself to forgive. That's an odd notion of forgiveness. I don't require the death of your eldest son to forgive you when you wrong me. Why should God? In other words, God forgives us. We are to forgive other people. And so it's a very odd notion that subsequent to an infinite wrath being propitiated. Calvin gets this in part from Anselm of Canterbury. But the biblical depiction is the opposite of that of Calvin. God's love and mercy, it is a continual theme, endure forever, but his wrath is but for a day. His wrath quickly passes. Psalms 35, his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Psalms 106 Verse 1, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His love endures forever. Psalms 118, give to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me.
That is the theme of the Old Testament. We could just duplicate those passages over and over. Mercy, love, is a key attribute of God. But Calvin subsumes mercy under the attribute of wrath, as if wrath is the prime attribute of God. And I'm not exaggerating here. He literally says that love is not an attribute of God. He says love is an anthropomorphism. It just appears that he loves us and that actually he's wrathful. He's changed God's on us. Most of us would not consider it merciful to demand those who have wronged us that they be killed first before we forgive them. It would be considered diabolical should we desire that those who have transgressed against us be tortured forever prior to our offer of mercy. Maybe we're more merciful than God. As I say this, I'm partly frightened that I should even utter such words. Are we too forgiving? Are we too merciful? Do we need to look to God and demand our pound of flesh? God forbid. We expect tyrants to punish every wrong and to revenge every transgression, but we don't call it forgiveness should they grant pardon to an already slaughtered enemy. It's presumed by Calvin that locating this evil in the mysteries of God somehow makes it good. The presumption is that humans are more able to be merciful than their own maker due to their less strict code of justice. In other words, he gets justice wrong. He gets righteousness wrong. And then he gets God wrong. The notion that infinite wrath can be equated with God's justice. That's the first perversion. Right? No connection. Then that this justice demands suffering as punishment to achieve forgiveness. That's the second perversion. And then God's wrath stands over and against God's mercy, so there's a split in God. That's the third perversion. And all of this perverts justice, it perverts mercy, it perverts God. I'm afraid it perverts Christianity. And that's the Christianity that we're faced with. That's why we have an evil Christianity. This God that demands infinite suffering as justice, I am afraid would cause us to take refuge from the Father and the Son. George MacDonald describes this. George MacDonald is an 18th century preacher. He, he was in Calvinist Scotland. And he's preaching against Calvinism. So you can imagine how unpopular he was. He says to take refuge with his work that's the end result rather than with the son himself it's to take refuge with the theory of that work instead of the work itself it's to shelter behind a false quirk of law instead of nestling in the eternal heart of the unchangeable and righteous father and so I'm afraid that Calvin's interpretation of Christianity might cause us to miss Jesus at the end of this chapter in Ephesians, and this is the conclusion, Paul depicts salvation as a harmoniously functioning kingdom united in Christ. 
Look at verse 19. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This beautiful imagery of citizenship in the kingdom, being part of God's household, we're part of God's family, being incorporated into Christ, we ourselves being living stones in the temple. I believe this accounts for the entire movement from damnation to salvation. That's what he just says. You were dead in your trespasses, but now you're made alive together. The disparate elements of the divided kingdom. You know, Paul talks about you were split by this dividing wall of hostility. People were defined by this hostility. But he himself is our peace. Christ has broken down the wall of hostility. He's broken down enmity, hatred, violence. And these will be burned away to make for his enduring peace among the objects of his wrath. The very ones who were strangers and aliens are made into fellow citizens. He abolished in his flesh the enmity. He has turned the enmity into a purified love. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even those who were dead in transgressions, he has made us alive together in Christ Jesus. And so the making alive due to love redirects from within the orientation to death definitive of the experience, I believe, called wrath, called enmity. It's a passage to love enacted by Christ. And this is what the church has always understood, beginning with the early church fathers. Origen writes, if you hear of God's anger and wrath, do not think of wrath and anger as emotions experienced by God. These are accommodations of the use of language, like that designed for the correction and improvement of the little child. He says, we too put on a severe face for children. In Gregory of Nyssa and Maximus the Confessor, the wrath of God proceeds from his love, so that even hell itself is not a divine work, but the reality we have wrought within ourselves by our perverse refusal, I'm quoting, to open out as God himself eternally has done in love for God and others. Sin is a shutting ourselves off from God. Paul says we're lost in the cosmos. We're being lost within ourselves and the fire of divine love cannot transform or enliven us, but only assail us as an eternal or external chastisement, a hell of our own making. But what is sinful cannot endure. The flame of God's love. This is George MacDonald. There is nothing eternal but that which loves and can be loved. And love is ever climbing towards the consummation when such shall be the universe, imperishable, divine. And so we're Calvin, I'm afraid we're evangelical Christianity, 
primarily depicts an angry, punishing God, the biblical depiction is of a God of love, calling us, prompting us, compelling us to enter into that bond of love. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.